Putin really has self-isolated for the last two years. He hasn't travelled much. Even within Russia, he hasn't been out and about. When people meet him, as we've seen in the TV images in the last few weeks, they're not let near him. So you have these almost farcical scenes where his advisors are sitting at the opposite end of a, of a 10-metre table. Ruan McCormick is an assistant editor with the Irish Times and the paper's former foreign affairs correspondent. And I think that distance, it symbolises a broader distancing of Putin from his advisers, from his generals, and possibly from reality itself. Today's attacks on Ukraine could place him beyond the realms of reason and negotiation, more isolated and more dangerous than ever. I'm Sarah Chapalak, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today we ask, who is Vladimir Putin, and how did it come to this? Ruan, ten years ago, author and journalist Masha Gessen described Vladimir Putin as the man without a face in their biography on the Russian president. Why do you think he was given that name? I think Vladimir Putin has been very good at retaining this aura of inscrutability. And he's been helped by the fact, I suppose, that he spent the early part of his career working for the KGB, you know, in an organ, in a secretive organization that leaves very few public records behind. He spent quite a number of years in, in East Germany in Dresden in the 1980s and the KGB were much more effective and efficient than the Stasi at destroying their records. So there's very little publicly available information about Vladimir Putin and his activities in Dresden in those years. But it was only when he was in his late 30s, early 40s, that he suddenly appeared on the public scene in St. Petersburg, which is where he's from. And so Putin manages to appear a man with no history, a man with no background, and to to sort of fashion himself anew. And what you find is that people see what they want to see in Vladimir Putin from an early stage. People in the security services in, in St. Petersburg at the time saw him very much as one of their own. However, the democratic movement in Russia saw him, and I think this applies also to, to Boris Yeltsin and people around Boris Yeltsin, who was the president at the time, saw Putin as you know a very capable, uh, effective civil servant who was fully bought into the ideals of Russia after the Soviet Union. And I suppose what Masha Gessen is saying is that Putin was able to to be all things to all people. And that's been a, a feature of his political career all the way through, I think. And during Putin's time with the KGB, he was, as you've mentioned, in the East German city of Dresden, and he was there when the Berlin Wall fell in 89. How did this moment in history shape the man that he went on to become, do you think? What's important to note, I think, is that uh, Vladimir Putin missed the last decade of the Soviet Union in the Soviet Union. He was in Dresden. He was working for the KGB. And he missed a year that a lot of people who lived through that era felt conflicted about. On the one hand, it it was a chaotic time. It was a time of real uncertainty. For many people, it was a a really disorienting period in in Russia in the 1980s. But it was also a time, including in St. Petersburg, a, a time of dizzying cultural activity, intellectual uh, debate and engagement. Um, New art was being created that questioned um, the Soviet experience um, and satirized it even. You had novels 
and other forms of art that had been censored throughout the Soviet era that were now being read and circulated and discussed. And I think a lot of people who lived through that era acquired a taste for those freedoms and for those debates and for that opening up to the West. But of course, Putin missed it. He was in Dresden. He was working for the KGB. And I think it's important to remember that he was no communist, certainly not towards the end. I mean, he's described Marxism and Leninism as a fairy tale. And he's he said, you know, anybody who didn't regret the fall of the Soviet Union had no heart, but anybody who want to, wanted to reconstitute it didn't have a brain. You know, so he was well aware that the Soviet Union needed to change. But what he regretted and what he said caused him real hurt was that nothing else replaced the Soviet Union as he saw it. He later, much later, described the fall of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. What he meant was that you had a lot of Russian-speaking or ethnic Russian people in states other than Russia who, as he said, were suddenly orphaned. And I think it's really important to understand Putin's experience of the fall of the Soviet Union in trying to understand what he would set out to do in his presidency. What can you tell me, Ron, about after he left East Berlin, when he went back to the Kremlin and started to rise up politically through the ranks? Well, first he goes to St. Petersburg and he he rises very fast through the bureaucracy in City Hall in St. Petersburg and he attaches himself to Anatoly Sobchak, who's a, a, a you know a, a democratic or, or modernizing, certainly seen as a modernizing figure in St. Petersburg in those years. But he builds up networks of relationships and networks of influence in St. Petersburg. And what happens then is that Putin is handpicked by the central authorities in Moscow. He's brought to the Kremlin and he, he works in various roles in the Kremlin and is, is noticed by Boris Yeltsin, by Boris Yeltsin's family and by his entourage. Putin was only ever a mid-ranking KGB officer. He, he didn't rise to the top of that system as a civil servant. It was only later when he was appointed to roles, politically appointed roles, that he, he really did come to the top. But certainly the Kremlin, he was very well regarded, would have been seen as part of a rising generation of Russian bureaucrats who were capable, who were efficient, were bought into perestroika and, and, and the new regime. And so what happens then when it's clear that Yeltsin will have to step down and, and that they'll have to find a successor, they very quickly identify Putin. And um, I think part of his appeal is that he is not associated with any particular faction in, in Russian politics. And, and I think that also turns out to be one of his main points of appeal with the population in general too. And so in 1999, Putin was, as you mentioned, handpicked to basically step up and become the next president by his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin. Now, at first, Western leaders thought Putin was someone they could do business with. What did Putin do to give them that impression that things would be different now, easier, perhaps? Certainly early on, there was no indication that Putinism represented a, a big rupture with the Yeltsin era. So Putin, one of the, some of the first things he did were to liberalize measures that liberalized the uh, Russian economy further. And of course, this was taken as a signal in Western capitals that Putin was, was a Democrat, was a modernizer, was looking to open up Russia further. I mean, he took office late 99, early 2000. And so he was early enough in his presidency by the time 9-11 occurred. And he was one of the first leaders to rally to the United States to pledge full solidarity 
to George W. Bush into the United States. President Vladimir Putin spoke on Russian television to express his sympathy and his outrage. This goes beyond the United States' national borders, he said. It's a wanton act. And he even made Russian military bases in Central Asia available to the U.S. military, and they used those bases to strike targets in, in Afghanistan. And so the early signs, if you were in Washington or, or in Berlin or in other European capitals, were, were, were quite positive. But I think things begin to turn um, a few years after that. But it seems that Putin has made it clear that these goodwill gestures, like the support for the US after the 9-11 attacks, that these weren't properly reciprocated or appreciated by the West. Was he right to believe that? Was he right to believe that he had done something for the West, but the West hadn't done something, anything in response? That's certainly been argued by, by, by people close to Putin, that he felt that these gestures were unreciprocated. I think if he expected reciprocation to come in the form of NATO not expanding in Eastern Europe, um, that was never likely to come because there was such demand in, in those post-Soviet republics in, in Eastern Central Europe for membership of NATO. And I think the dynamic was all going in that direction. Certainly, he had no joy on that front. But it, it only, I, I suppose, became clear in subsequent years just how strongly he felt about that. And it really became one of the themes of the next 15 years for Putin, this anger he felt at what he saw and what NATO and the US and, and Europe strongly argued against, but what he saw as an attempt to encroach on Russia's sphere of influence uh, and to set NATO up to strike Russia in, in some future scenario. Um, and so he was implacably opposed, for example, to the building of a missile defense system in Poland. As you've mentioned, it was the mid-2000s, Putin's relationship with the West was starting to become strained. Meanwhile, within his own country and with each passing year, he was steadily extending his authority and putting the squeeze on dissenting voices within Russia. How was that being received and what exactly was going on in Russia during that time? There's no one date that you can identify and say, this is when Putin began to clamp down on internal dissent. It's a process that's been underway for 20 years. And, and certainly from this vantage point, we can see that it began very, very early on. So steadily, it became much more difficult for independent media to operate. It became increasingly difficult for political opposition to form. And so steadily, what you see happening is that the space for civic debate and public discussion contracts, and it contracts with every successive year, culminating, I guess, in recent years with the arrest of Naval uh, Alexei Navalny, the most charismatic of the remaining opposition leaders, and, and the total squeeze that he's put on independent media, with one exception, which is social media, notwithstanding the, the efforts of the Russian state to make it more difficult for people to access Facebook and other social media networks. You know, it's clear that a lot of young people in particular in Russia uh, are, are receiving information from outside. The problem is that television is really, really important as a source of information to Russians, and particularly all older Russians. And television in Russia is completely under, under the control of the, uh, of the regime. Something else that Putin's done is he's abolished the presidential term limits, which means in, actually he can remain in office until 2036 when he will be 84. Do we know, Ruan, how that's been received in the country? Putin's problem early on was that there was a four-year term limit, renewable once. So he served two terms after his initial appointment. And what happened then was that he had to step down in 2008 and he installed Dmitry Medvedev, in his place. And, and this gave rise to new hopes in the West that they might still be able to deal with Russia, that Medvedev might be somebody they could talk to and do business with. 
But it was clear to many people then, and, and certainly it's very clear now, that Medvedev, who was a protege of Putin's from his days in St. Petersburg, was only ever a placeholder and that there was no serious plan for Putin to step away. So Putin became prime minister and Medvedev became president. But as soon as Medvedev's first term was over, Putin returned. And as you said, in 2020, he did away entirely with the term limits. He can serve now until his mid-80s. He's 69 now. It's open to him to leave earlier than that, but certainly he has cemented his power. And he did this at a time when it was impossible for any serious opposition to that move to emerge. Coming up, the turning point in Putin's relationship with the West. Ruan, in 2003 and 2004, within the space of a year, pro-Western revolutions broke out in Georgia and Ukraine, forcing Moscow-oriented leaders from office. How was this a turning point in Putin's leadership? Putin was convinced, in his public rhetoric at least, that these revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine were orchestrated by the West. And he saw them as an attempt by the West to encroach on his sphere of influence, as he saw it. There was no evidence for, for this, of course. But you can clearly see that after the election of Western-oriented or Western-leading leaders in these two countries and the ousting of Russian sympathetic leaders, that coinciding, of course, with NATO's expansion, that Putin changes his public posture, at least towards the West. So, you know, you can trace this through his State of the Union speeches around this time, this annual set-piece speech he gives, um, in the one he gave before the rose and orange revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine, respectively, he speaks about European Union enlargement as uh, an opportunity not just for the EU to grow closer geographically to Russia, but also for the two to grow spiritually closer as well. By the time these revolutions have happened, the rhetoric has changed completely. It's become much darker. It's it, He talks then about Russia pursuing its own path um, following an alternative homegrown form of democracy and in effect turning its back on, on the European Union. And his general posture then towards the West becomes much more hostile um, and much more antagonistic. And then a few years later in 2014, Ukraine's Russian-backed president, Viktor Yanukovych, was forced from office. Few would have predicted the speed of events. Parliament voting President Viktor Yanukovych out of office. 24 hours after an EU-brokered deal aimed at peace was signed, it was in tatters. Putin responded by seizing Crimea and supporting the separatists in the Donbass eastern region of Ukraine. That, it's now clear, was the first move in Putin's bigger long-term plan, right? I think so. What happened was Yanukovych, he had a decision to make. He had proposals for closer economic relations on the table from the EU and from Russia, and he had to choose. And for many years leading up to that, Ukraine had sort of shifted. At one time, it was oriented more towards Russia. At other times, in other respects, it was oriented more towards the European Union. So this was an important moment. And what Yanukovych did under pressure from Moscow was he decided not to sign a framework economic agreement with the European Union. And this set off protests around Ukraine and Yanukovych was forced from office. And so this was certainly as Putin saw it was a decisive moment in the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. And what emerges from that then is that Putin illegally 
annexes Crimea and he begins to support an insurgency in the Donbass in, in these two provinces adjacent to, to Russia in the in the east of Ukraine. That begins a, a conflict, a war that continues to this day, continued certainly to, to the point of Russia's invasion recently. And I think you're right, is the first stage in a process that we're seeing through now. And late last year, the United States started warning that Putin was preparing for military action in Ukraine. U.S. intelligence officials say Russia could invade Ukraine as soon as January. According to a Biden administration official, a potential Russian invasion could involve as many as 175,000 troops. Along, But when the invasion finally came a few weeks ago in late February, it was greeted among many EU member states with complete disbelief at first. Why do you think Europe did not pay heed to those warnings from the US and was so, I guess, underprepared for what was coming? I think partly it was the European Union couldn't believe that in 2022, you would be faced with a sort of a 19th century style war on the European continent. I think people just couldn't get their heads around it. And of course, they didn't want to believe it because the results, as we're seeing already, are catastrophic. There was a faith in the power of diplomacy to talk Putin back. There was a strong sense that that Putin was bluffing. Uh, I think countries like France, which had played important roles in the conflict in Georgia in 2008, when when Putin had sent troops into Georgia, had played quite a successful role in, in, in limiting the invasion by Russia at that point, felt that they could do something similar this time. And I think they took seriously Putin's arguments about NATO. They, they At least they accepted that that was the reason for what was happening. Whereas, in fact, what we see now and what Putin is quite explicit about since the invasion began is that actually he's just looking to, to get Ukraine back, but not only back into Russian, Russia's sphere of influence, but almost to reintegrate it with Russia. And so what you see is that this broader imperial project of Vladimir Putin's, which is not about reconstituting the Soviet Union. It's much, actually more ambitious than that. It's it's reconstituting what he sees as the Russian lands of Eurasia, uh, that, that the invasion of Ukraine is a part of that. And he said only in the last few days that Russians and Ukrainians are really the same people. And it was one of his big miscalculations, of course, because U- Ukraine has developed, apart from having a long a long and proud tradition as a as as a as a people, Ukrainians and the state of Ukraine has developed a lot in the last twenty years, and the sense of national identity you see in Ukraine now is not one that's bounded by ethnicity or bounded by language, as I think Putin thinks it is. It's actually much broader and it's a much more fully formed idea of Ukraine than he understands. Bringing it up to today, there's a perception that. Two years of isolation during COVID has really shrunk Putin's circle of confidence and left him more introverted than ever before. How much do you think health crisis of the past two years has contributed to the man who has decided to invade Ukraine? Putin really has self-isolated for the last two years. He hasn't travelled much, even within Russia. He hasn't been out and about when people meet him. Even today, as we've seen in the TV images in the last few weeks, they're not let near him unless they submit to a PCR test uh, in Moscow uh, just before the meeting. So you have these almost farcical scenes where his advisors are sitting at the opposite end of a of a 10 metre table. And I think that distance 
it symbolizes a broader distancing of Putin from his advisors, from his generals, and possibly from reality itself. I mean, we've spoken about how he miscalculated, how he has made some pretty serious misjudgments. Regardless of how the war turns out, it's clear that he's made a lot of mistakes in, the, in these early stages. And I think a lot of people see that as a reflection of his increasing, his increasing isolation. We knew for years that Putin was paranoid. We knew that he had a very small circle of people. But that becomes quite dangerous in a situation like this because... I mean, we saw the video last week of him dressing down his spy chief in front of uh, in front of the world. That man is regarded as one of the three or four people who actually have influence over Putin. If he speaks to people who are in his inner circle like that, and it's clear that it's not a, it's nowhere near a relationship of equals he has with these people, then no question he, he's he's isolated. And and the longer this continues, and the more misgivings you presume people around him will have, the more dangerous then that becomes. We know that Russians have been bombarded with propaganda about both the Ukraine and the West for the past few months and years. But what do we know about the actual level of support Putin has within the Russian electorate? It's always very difficult to say because Russia is not a free society. People are not going to speak freely to pollsters, certainly not everybody. There's a general feeling, I think, of apathy towards the political system. And there really is no space for internal dissent in domestic Russian politics. So it's very difficult to say. All of that said, we do have some opinion polls and we do have some indications that Putin's popularity has been declining of late. It was also declining, by the way, in 2013, 2014, which some people suggested was part of the rationale he had for the annexation of Crimea. Because, of course, what happened after the annexation of Crimea was that his popularity surged. Something similar happened early on in his presidency, actually, when he mounted a, an all-out and ferocious war against Chechnya. And his popularity soared after that as well. And so there is some speculation that the timing, at least, of this move against Ukraine is linked to his declining support in Russia, the fact that there will be elections. I mean, there's no chance of Putin's party being hammered in those elections, far from it. But, you know, he is alive to public sentiment. He is aware that uh, he needs to maintain a certain degree of public legitimacy. And so, yeah, there is an argument that the timing, at least, of what he's doing now is connected to all of that. Ruan, looking forward to the next few days and weeks, do you think Western nations will be able to negotiate with Putin for some sort of end to this conflict in Ukraine? Do you think there are any concessions that he might accept? Or is there a danger that he's become so isolated and so impervious to counsel that there's no prospect for negotiations? I think right now it's very difficult to see a way out. Nothing in Vladimir Putin's history suggests that he will retreat, certainly not in the short term. There's nothing, nothing to suggest that he will accept minimalist concessions from the West, as he would see them, and, and pull Russian troops out of Ukraine. That said, it is interesting that he has sent a negotiating team to talk to the Ukrainians, albeit a very junior group of people. I think he's going to come under huge pressure in the coming days and weeks. Sanctions usually, economic sanctions usually take a long time to have an effect. That's partly the idea, that you can ratchet them up slowly over time. What the West has done could be catastrophic for the Russian economy, and it could be catastrophic really fast. 
Um, we've already seen queues at ATMs in Russia. It's going to reach deep into the Russian economy. It's going to affect not just oligarchs and the regime, but ordinary people as well. I think at a certain point, the West might be in a situation where they have to provide him with an off-ramp. They have to, much as it might be difficult to swallow it, they might have to say, well, if you withdraw troops from here or there, we might rescind some of these sanctions. In other words, get into a negotiation about what it would take for some of these sanctions to be lifted. But certainly in the short term, it's going to get worse. I think the Russians, having misjudged really badly early on and in many ways been embarrassed by their lack of success on the battlefield, will respond by ratcheting up the pressure, by intensifying airstrikes, perhaps by sending in even more troops. And so I think in the short term, it's going to get much more difficult for Ukraine. But I think lines of diplomatic communication will stay open because they simply have to. Ron, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's all for today. My thanks to our guest, Ruan McCormack. And you can read more from Ruan on Vladimir Putin and the Russian invasion of Ukraine at irishtimes.com. Today's episode was produced by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan. In the News will be back on Wednesday. <laughs>